This is it. This is our last episode in the 22-episode series on Catholic sexuality, our last episode of 14 in our sub-series of sexuality and Catholic marriages. It has been a long run. Thank you for being here. We are finishing up with our metaphor of the Catholic canopied marriage bed, and today we're going to be discussing the four bedposts, the canopy, the bed skirt, the bedspread, and the shams with more examples. I'm clinical psychologist Peter Malinowski. I am here with you to be your host and guide. This podcast is Interior Integration for Catholics. It's part of Souls and Hearts, our online outreach at soulsandhearts.com, which is all about shoring up the natural foundation for the Catholic spiritual life, all about overcoming psychological obstacles to being loved and to loving God and neighbor. In this podcast, we confront the tough questions we Catholics have In our day-to-day lives, we confront head-on the struggles that we have in the natural realm, including these sexual struggles, these difficulties that we have in our sexual lives, the things that keep us from fully loving our spouses, the things that keep us from fully loving God, the things that keep us from fully loving ourselves. This is episode 70. It's released on May 31st, 2021, and it's entitled Catholic Sex and the Four Pillars and the do's and don'ts of sharing about your sexual life. Okay, so let's review the bed. The Catholic canopied marriage bed represents the sexual life, the sexual intimacy of a married Catholic couple. And let's start with the floor. This is absolutely fundamental. The floor, the foundation, is the presence of God and his providence. It's a deep abiding belief in God's providence. This is the most fundamental piece of the whole metaphor. We need to be in contact with God as he is the source of all reality. We can't forget that. All right, so next, the four legs. The four legs that rest on that floor. Leg one, the husband's commitment to his own interior integration and his own human formation. Leg two, the wife's commitment to her interior integration, her human formation. Leg three, understanding attachment needs and integrity needs, our own and those of our spouse. Number four, internal family systems informed approaches to understanding how we actually tick, how we're actually organized inside this whole idea of a core self and parts and all of that. We went into that heavily in episode 60 in the question of how well do you really know your spouse? So above the legs, right, we have the frame and the box spring. The frame, the box spring, is the firm, unwavering commitment of the husband to his marriage vows and the wife to her marriage vows. It's really, really important. That commitment, firm, unwavering, and they're doing it independently. Next, the mattress. This is the empathy. We talked about the five kinds of empathy in episode 65, empathy. Then we have the two pillows. That's self-acceptance and spouse acceptance. The pillows support us. They comfort us. They provide security. Then the bottom sheet or the fitted sheet. That's the sexual attraction. That's the intensity of the sexual passion. That's the eros. Then the top sheet, the communication between the spouses, the blankets. That's the human warmth, the emotional connection between the spouses. And then we have what we're covering in this podcast today. We have the four bedposts. Those are the four pillars 
of Catholic resilience. We went That takes us all the way back to episode four of this podcast, which came out back in late March of 2020, more than a year ago. Imagine two spirals intertwined, like the double helix structure of DNA going up from the corners of the bed. Those are the bedposts, mindset, heart set, body set, soul set. We're also going to be covering today the canopy and the curtains. The canopy and the curtains are there to protect the privacy and propriety of Catholic sexual married intimacy, or they can also be used to hide dysfunction. They can be used to hide exploitation or even abuse. And then we're also going to cover today the sham, the bedspread, and the bed skirts. These are used to cover up the real bed and to give an impression to the world of the state of married life in the marriage. All right, so let's start with those bedposts, those four sets, those four pillars, body set, mindset, heart set, and soul set. Remember that double helix structure, you know, that's how we're kind of envisioning those bedposts, the husband strand and the wife strand, they're interwoven, they're entwined together like the double helix structure of DNA rising up overhead from the four corners, looking down on the bed. Now, one thing to remember about these sets, body set, mindset, heart set, and soul set, is that they are not static. They are dynamic. They shift. They vary as a function of our parts and what is activated and what is not activated within us in a given moment. So we've got some descriptions. We're going to review what we learned way back in episode four. Let's define those four sets again, the four pillars of resilience. Body set, mindset, heart set, and soul set. So it's definition time with Dr. Peter. Body set is how our body affects us, how our physical reactions impact us, our dispositions, our inclinations. Mindset is essentially our frame of mind. Our mindset is the position of our intellect and how we apply reason to our situation and our experiences. It's our cognitive operations. Heart set is the dispositions or orientations of our heart, the intuitive, the emotional ways of our heart. And soul set is essentially our attitude of soul. It's the disposition of our spirit. It's how my soul is oriented. A lot of your human formation is about being aware of your own sets in the moment. Your body set, your mindset, your heart set, and your soul set. And that is especially true when we are talking about sexual intimacy. So much of your empathy for your spouse is going to involve reading accurately your spouse's sets, your spouse's mindset, body set, heart set, and soul set. And will this sexual experience be good for your spouse? Will this sexual intimacy that you're intending to have or that you're desiring, will that be good for your spouse's mind, heart, soul, and body right now in these particular circumstances? Where is your spouse emotionally? Where is your spouse relationally with you? How is your spouse doing physically right now? How is his or her soul? We need to pay attention to common repeated relational patterns or cycles that happen between you and your spouse. There's a lot that's very predictable in sexual intimacy among spouses. We need to become aware of that and to get deeper to what is the underlying meaning of the things that happen in those cycles, in those patterns with our spouses. 
our parts have very different experiences of sexual intimacy. Now let's go back and understand what parts are. We discussed this at length in episodes 60 and 61. Parts are separate, independently operating like little personalities within us. And each part has its own unique prominent needs, its own role in our lives, its own emotions, body sensations, guiding beliefs and assumptions, its typical thoughts, its intentions, its desires, its attitudes, its impulses, its own interpersonal style and way of relating, and it's got its own worldview. IFS therapist Robert Falconer calls these parts insiders. I really love that term, insiders. Each part also has its own approach to sexuality. Now, it happens that these parts blend with your core self, and when they blend, they kind of take over, kind of like those emotions in the movie Inside Out, taking over the control panel. You can be blended in a part, your spouse can be blended in a part, and those parts can actually switch. If you go back to episode 61, which was entitled Fractured, Fragmented Sex and Catholic Marriages, that was a long description about how parts came in and out in the course of a single sexual encounter between a Catholic husband and a Catholic wife. All right, so let's rewind it. Let's go back and dive in more to body set. Body set is how our body affects us. It's how our physical reactions impact us and our dispositions and inclinations, right? So it's how our bodies impact us. We are embodied beings. We are composites of body and soul. And our physical bodies have a huge impact on us. So body set is that impact of bodily states on us. So if we're exhausted from a lack of sleep, that's going to have an impact on us, not just our bodies, but also all the other sets, mindset, soul set, and heart set. Okay, so our body set is dynamic. It changes from time to time, from moment to moment. And understanding body set is particularly important in marriage because the bodies of the husband and wife are so united. Bodies have a huge impact on our relating in our marriages. And let's just review what scripture says, what our Lord tells us in scripture about the bodies of husbands and wives. This is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken." Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, we could spend a whole podcast episode just breaking down this scripture, but what I want to highlight for you is this statement. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The two become one flesh. They share their bodies together. They came from one body and they're united as one flesh. This is reiterated by Jesus walking the face of the earth during his time of public ministry in Mark 10 verses 6 to 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Right? See the emphasis there? He repeats himself to drive home the point that we're no longer two separate bodies, but one flesh. I think very few Catholic couples get the degree to which they're to be one flesh with their spouse, one body. Again, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, and this is important, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. All right, so the spouse has authority over the other spouse's body. Why? Because they're one flesh. All right, so what does this mean in terms of practical application? What, where does the rubber meet the road with this one flesh idea? What do I mean about understanding body set? Let's take an example of a wife. I'll call her Carol. And let's say that Carol is tired when it comes to having sexual intercourse on a given evening with her husband. All right, tired. Let's take a look at that. What might that mean? It may mean exactly what it says. There, you know, sometimes Freud said a cigar is just a cigar, right? So she might have had a hard day of physical labor, right? So she's just tired and maybe that's it. Could be that there's something else going on physically, right? An illness. She's coming down with a cold or maybe she's got some other medical condition that causes fatigue, Let's take it a little deeper, though, because there's other possibilities here, including psychosomatic expressions of distress. Oh, that's a big $5 word you brought in here. Dr. Peter, psychosomatic, what does that mean? Psycho means basically psychological. Somatic means the body. When something is psychosomatic, it means that psychological distress is being expressed through the body. It's being expressed physically. So psychosomatic expressions of distress could be that the physical fatigue is a way of saying, you know what, I'm not feeling well emotionally. I'm emotionally in a bad place. But sometimes we don't even know that that's what it's about. Many times, psychosomatic symptoms, they're not understood as being psychological by the person who's experiencing the symptoms, by the person himself or herself. So what could be happening here is that the wife is in some bad place emotionally or some bad place relationally with her husband. And we'll get into an example of what that could look like. And what can happen sometimes is that the fatigue is a way to damp down some other internal experience. And let me give you an example. Anger. A part that's feeling a lot of anger towards the spouse might be threatening the wife's system. It might be threatening Carol's system. And so in order to protect Carol and her husband, another part comes in with all of this fatigue, which wipes out the anger, which sort of suppresses it or or stifles it, right? So instead of being angry at her husband in a conscious, aware way, she is tired. That has the potential of avoiding conflict, right? If that anger were to come out, perhaps there would be some kind of fight or some kind of conflict between her and her husband. Another example of body set, the headache. Parts of us can generate headaches. 
psychosomatically. A part may be invested for some reason in not engaging in sexual intercourse. It could be a part that's experienced trauma in the past sexually and happens to be particularly active, or it may be defending it against another part that's just raw because there's something coming up from the past. It doesn't have anything to do directly with the marriage or the sexual relationship with the husband in the present moment, but there could be something coming up from from the past. Maybe that wife is doing some work in therapy and some of this stuff is much nearer to the surface because in the holding environment of the therapy, there's some really good work being done, but it's kind of raw right there right now. And so that headache comes up in order to not have there being some kind of crossover from the present to the past, some kind of crossover from the more ordered sexual relationship with her husband to some kind of sexual trauma that happened in the past. Another example of body set, and this is something that a lot of husbands don't really get. So I think it's kind of important to say it. For some wives, their cycles, their monthly cycles have a huge impact on sexual desire for the husband. This is mediated by hormones. It's a physiological thing. It's very body-based. And sometimes husbands, when they perceive that lack of sexual interest at a given point in their wife's cycle, they can really have parts that personalize that, that interpret that lack of sexual desire in the spouse on this day as rejection, as evidence of being unloved or being unlovable or being undesirable. It can bring up all kinds of shame, can bring up rage, can bring up other kinds of things within the husband, depending on his human formation. That cyclic aspect is so important and it becomes complicated when there is some kind of hormonal or endocrine disruption in the wife or when one is approaching menopause and so forth. So we want to remember that this is really body-based. Sometimes we can forget that. All right, one more example of, of body set. Remember Bill from the last episode? He asked the question, I really get turned on when my wife bites me. It helps me to have sex with her. I find I don't have to use Viagra then. Is that okay? Is it better for me to use the Viagra? I don't want to not be able to have the fullness of sexual intimacy with her. Okay, so Bill's difficulties in achieving and maintaining an erection cannot be purely a medical or physical issue because he doesn't need the Viagra to help him with that if his wife bites him, right? So something is going on with the body set, right? Why? What is attractive or arousing about the biting? There's some kind of meaning to that. And it's 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 body, it's body informed. It's something having to do with the body, with being bitten. So the main thing with body set is to pay attention to bodies. And so many people in our culture today are so disconnected from their bodies that this often is a major challenge for some Catholic married couples. All right, mindset. We're going to go to the next pillar, mindset. Mindset is essentially a frame of mind. Our mindset is the position of our intellect, how we apply reason to our situation and to our experiences, including our sexual experiences. Just like body set, our mindset is dynamic. It changes. We can have a very positive outlook in one moment in time and a very negative outlook a moment later. It can be about the same set of circumstances too. Our mindset greatly influences not only our thinking, but also our behavior. Let's illustrate this with a story. The story of Carol and Ben. 
So it's story time with Dr. Peter. All right, so let's go back to the tired wife, Carol, right? Let's say she's had a difficult day at work, a difficult time with the children that she picked up after school before her husband, Ben, comes home. He's been working late. Ben kisses the kids goodnight. He's ready for a late supper. And then, you know, maybe a little romance with Carol. But Carol's mindset is one of, Ben, you've left me alone with the kids repeatedly. You don't understand how much that demands from me. It's not fair that you just get to come home, eat a fine supper that I prepared, kiss the kids, and expect that I'm going to be all into you and your wonderfulness, Ben. Right? So that's where her mindset is. So at this point, the firefighting part that Carol has that generates fatigue, it may lift. There may be a shift of parts and the anger from an exiled part comes in and that starts coming through, affecting her heart set, affecting her emotional position towards her husband. And so speaking from this angry part, Carol says, you don't really understand me or you wouldn't be inviting me to bed like this. You know, you need to help out more around here I, or I won't want any more kids. Not if I have to raise them and care for them by myself. No sex for you, Ben. Right, you can see how this is coming out from that angry part, right? Well, let's take a quick shift here and take a look at what's going on in Ben's mindset at this point. You know, he's now shifted from thinking about how wonderful his wife is and how much he would like to be with her in this sexually intimate way. And now his protector parts are busy defending against her criticism of him, right? He's going into a place of, Carol, you're being unreasonable. What did I do wrong? I just came home from a long day at work, busting my hump to provide for this family. And you lay into me as though it's a bad thing, as though it's a crime for a husband to be attracted to his wife, right? So you see where his mindset is? Okay, so let's see how these mindsets that Carol and Ben are experiencing impact their heart sets, right? So heart set is the disposition or the orientation of our heart. It's the emotional and intuitive ways of the heart, more right brain types of aspects here. Heart set is essentially our emotional states and the positions we take because of our feelings, and heart set is even more dynamic and changeable for many people than mindset. Heart set very much influences our mindset. All right, so what's going on in the heart set? Well, let's go back to Ben in our example, right? Ben's anger flaring up. It's not fair that you say I don't help. Now, that's not actually what Carol said, but in a defensive mindset, Ben hears it that way and it fuels his anger in his heart set. Here you see mindset and heart set working together. Carol's heart is closed, seeing Ben as intrusive, and her protectors have impulses to attack and then to withdraw from him into the kitchen out of anger and fear. So that's what's going on in the heart set. That one's probably not that hard to grip onto. What's going on with us emotionally around some kind of issue of sexual intimacy. Soul set. Let's go to the fourth pillar. Soul set is essentially our attitude of soul. It's the disposition of our spirit. It's how our soul is oriented. And it can operate independently of mindset and heart set. Our soul set reflects how we see God and how we see ourselves in relationship with God and how we see God viewing us. Our soul set very much depends 
on the virtues we have acquired, especially the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Soul set can also be very dynamic in some people, particularly those who don't possess those virtues, and it can change rapidly. Okay, so in this episode where Carol and Ben are having this conflict, Carol and Ben are not seeing each other as children of God. They're not seeing themselves as one flesh. They're not motivated by charity. They're invoking justice and fairness. They're not looking to authentic agape love. And what would happen, just as a thought experiment, what would happen for Carol and Ben if they stopped? If instead of making romantic overtures towards his wife, Ben volunteered to help her clean up in the kitchen, if he if he took into consideration the circumstances in which Carol is in right now? What would happen if they prayed together? What would happen if they talked together? What would happen if they renewed the relational aspects instead of going straight to the marriage bed? Things would go better, right? Things would go much, much better. So those are the four pillars of Catholic resilience, the four sets Mindset, heart set, body set, soul set. And those compose the four bedposts rising up above the Catholic canopied marriage bed. All right, so let's go on now to the bedspread, the bed skirt, and the shams. These cover up the bed. These give a favorable, maybe even a false or misleading impression to the world of what the sexual intimacy in the Catholic marriage is like, keeping the real bed under wraps, as it were. Those bedspreads, bedskirts, and shams can also give a false impression to oneself about the quality of the sexual intimacy in the marriage. There is no shortage of Catholic spouses who deceive themselves about the quality of their sexual relating. It's very natural for us to to attempt to curate our social image, to keep up appearances. We don't want to engage in detraction or Uh, unnecessary or unwarranted criticism of our spouse for many reasons, but we also need to be real. We need to be real about ourselves sexually, and we need to be real about our spouses sexually and about our sexual intimacy. So to the degree that the bread spread, the bed skirt, and the shams are about a sense of propriety, of about a sense of keeping the private things private, that's a good thing. But we also want to make sure that they're not being used in a way to disguise reality or to deceive ourselves or others about about what the real nature is of our relationship with our spouses. Okay, so let's move on to the canopy. The canopy and the curtains. This is about the privacy of the marriage bed. And privacy in the married life is a good thing. I want to emphasize that. It's really a good thing, but sometimes spouses can use that privacy, can use the sense of propriety to mask exploitation or abuse, to gaslight each other in various ways. And so also remember that the privacy only goes so far. God knows what's happening in our sexual intimacy with our spouses. Luke 8.17 For nothing is hidden that will not be disclosed, nor is anything secret that will not become known and come to light. That includes your sexual relating, people. It really does. All of these things 
are not happening in absolute confidentiality. Oh no, God knows exactly what's going on in your Catholic sexual married life. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. We need to be open to God being involved in our Catholic intimacy. We need to be open to our own parts. Parts of us have very different attitudes about sexual expressions in the marriage. For example, that latent anger. If we have a part that carries latent anger toward our spouse, if that part's not given voice within ourselves, it increases the likelihood of some kind of behavioral enactment of that anger. In psychodynamic circles, they call it the revenge of the repressed. It's a very common phenomenon. The fantasy that parts often have is that if I suppress this, then it won't exist anymore. If I stuff this polar bear inside of me into a closet, he won't exist anymore. If I can't see it, it's not there. Well, that's just not true. Eventually, the polar bear is going to break out of the closet and it's going to create havoc inside. So what we want to do is not be repressing and suppressing and denying and trying to deny realities within ourselves, but we want to be working through these things, right? So openness to God, openness to our own parts. So openness to God, let's go back to that for a second. In prayer, right, one's individual prayer, we should be praying about our sexual intimacy with our spouses, I don't know. I I can't sit up in a cloud with a tally sheet and figure out exactly how much everybody's praying about their sexual lives. But what I do know from talking with people about this is that a lot of times the whole sexual realm is very separate from the spiritual realm. Like it's not very natural for many people, for many Catholics, it's not natural to pray about their sexual intimacy with their spouses. That's actually a new idea for many people because nobody seems to have ever talked with them about that. There's not been a modeling of that. I want to let you know that is a great thing to pray about. There also can be prayer together, you know, offering up a rosary or divine mercy chaplet or something with your spouse with an intention about something sexual that's coming between you and the intimacy in your marriage. There's also the openness to each other. The openness between the spouses is so critical. Let's also talk about openness to a trusted, competent other person, someone outside the marriage about sexual intimacy within the marriage. So now I'm going to reveal to you what I think the major impediment is to this openness and relating with yourself, with your spouse, and with God. Here it is. It is shame. Shame. I think this is the number one impediment that makes it hard for people to share what's going on in your Catholic sexual married intimate life. So check out episodes 37 to 49. We did a 13-episode series on shame. That's a whole course on shame and how to overcome shame. And we, we want to be asking ourselves, we want to be checking out with our parts, with our insiders, what is keeping us from being able to talk about this? Is it fear? Is it shame? Is it guilt? If so, what are we ashamed of? What are we guilty of? What are we afraid of? Is it a sense of propriety? Is it that we think our spouse would hate it? That our spouse would never agree? Well, have you asked? Have you asked your spouse about it? We can check that out. What happens in secret is not always going to be secret. So 
These are some guidelines if there is a reason to be sharing sexual aspects of your Catholic married intimate life with another person, a therapist, uh, a spiritual director, a trusted friend. The first, respect for your spouse. Remember that your husband is a beloved son of God and your wife is a beloved daughter of God. So let's talk about permission. Asking permission to discuss sexual intimacy issues in the marriage with the particular person. You want to name the person that you're going to discuss it with. And often the resistance is within our own parts. Sometimes the spouse is good with that. You know, they're, they're okay with it, but we thought they wouldn't be. And that's what our parts wanted us to believe, right? Well, I can't talk about this because my wife won't want, would never have that. When in fact, the wife would be like, no, I want you to talk about sexual intimacy difficulties. I've wanted you to do that for years, right? So we want to check that out. It's a great conversation to have. It's also really important to bring in parts language, right? This is that leg of the bed, that IFS, internal family systems leg, where we start to think about things in terms of parts. Instead of saying, she never wants to have sexual intimacy with me, you say, a part of her seems to really avoid sexual intimacy with me. I see how different the tone is there if we're not treating our spouse as a homogenous, unitary personality that's just uniform, right? But that there's these different parts and how we speak and how we think influences our attitudes and our behaviors. We also, when we share these things with others with our spouse's permission, a positive frame, a frame of wanting to make things better. We also need to own our own part of the challenges, right? Remember, remove the beam from your own eye before attempting to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We need to own our own part of it. We don't want to just go in to a conversation with a therapist or we go with a trusted friend or something like that, even if we have permission and just blast the spouse. You can share frustration, but it should be more than just venting. It shouldn't be a spouse bashing session. But as a therapist, you know, I'll take that if it's the only way the person can start sharing anything about a dysfunctional sexual pattern in the relationship. It all depends on maturity, right? If the spouse that I'm working with isn't very good at this kind of sharing, I'm going to give a wide berth of latitude and I'm not necessarily just going to believe everything that he or she says about the spouse. Obviously, we also don't want gossiping, right? All right. The other thing I'm going to recommend here is clarity of language. Let me give you an example. Some people will call masturbation, quote, self-abuse, end quote. Well, if I hear that term as a, as a therapist, I don't always know what it means, right? Does that mean that you've been cutting yourself or burning yourself or does it, but sometimes people will call it. So let's call things by names that are clear, right? Let's avoid euphemisms or ways that skirt the reality of an action or that obfuscate it in some way. So let's use the language that facilitates communications. I will use street terms if that is what, what the other person really understands best. All right, so let's talk about choosing a professional, right? Marital therapy can be really helpful. Individual therapy can be really helpful for this. Uh, a life coach can sometimes be helpful, a spiritual director, some other professional role. Now, a couple of things to bear in mind. You want to choose carefully, right? Because professionals often have their own sexual issues that impact how they relate with their clients around sexual matters. Many Catholic professionals don't really hold what the church teaches about sexuality. It's probably the area of church teaching that has the least amount of agreement among Catholic mental health professionals. 
And so many of them may not hold what the church teaches out of ignorance or because of their professional formation or because, as I said before, personal sexual issues that are getting stirred up. And my recommendation to assess this, if you're considering getting into therapy, is to ask. You can challenge your therapist. Now, I wouldn't expect that your therapist is going to reveal all kinds of their own personal sexual experiences to you. You're not entitled to know all about your therapist's sexual life. But you can ask questions about how he or she sees different kinds of things that are going on in your sexual intimacy with your spouse. I am into clients challenging their therapists, and I'm into therapists rising to the challenge. There should be a way that the therapist should be able to, to, to communicate with you around your questions in a way that is satisfying, right? So use your judgment, use your powers of discernment. All right, let's deal with the situation where a husband doesn't want his wife to discuss her experience of sexuality with him with anyone else, or a wife who doesn't want her husband to discuss their sex life with any other person. Then what, Dr. Peter, you might ask? Well, let's consider the reasons why. Often concerns about safety and security can come up. Emotions around fear, shame, guilt... We want to consider what parts of our spouse might be activated by the idea of sharing something about the shared sexual intimacy in the marriage. See if the spouse could discuss his or her reasons for the resistance to sharing. Now, you got to understand, your spouse may not know why they don't want it to be shared. It might not be very clear in their own mind. It might be very difficult for them to articulate. So we want to have some gentleness and kindness there if you're capable of that in the moment. You can also float the possibility of the two of you discussing the sexual intimacy issues together. You know, if your spouse doesn't want you to discuss this, maybe it would be better if the spouse were there, you know, for your spouse to give the other side of the story in the marriage. What happens if you try all of that and there's still continued refusal? Well, if your situation is not urgent and there's not abuse or exploitation, you can consider waiting. Prayer, sacrifice. Sometimes we have to wait for certain things. Revisit that conversation around sharing what's going on sexually with the spouse. You can also consider bringing up things hypothetically with another person like, I have a friend who, and then dot, 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 you fill in the blank for your own situation. That can often be uh, too transparent, though, for there really to be cover or camouflage on that. So you want to be careful about that. If the situation is urgent or abusive, you know, if there's domestic violence, if there's harm coming to family members because of the issues in sexual intimacy, or if there's gaslighting, psychological manipulation around sex, or some kind of psychological exploitation or abuse, then talk about it with someone you trust as soon as possible. Your spouse does not have the right to absolute silence from you over what's going on over exploitation, abuse, gaslighting, or other things that are going on that are problematic in sexual intimacy. For example, you have the right to confess your own sins if they happen to be sexual sins. Your house, your spouse cannot forbid you to take those things in the conventional. And your spouse has no right to violate your dignity as a child of God. So in those situations, I believe you have the right to be able to go ahead and share these things even without your husband's or your wife's permission.
All right, if we go back for a minute to episode 69, the last episode, we talked about the three parts of the moral act. I think it may be helpful to do one more exercise of looking at the three elements of a moral act through a story. As you know, I really like using stories to bring forward the concepts, to bring the concepts to life through practical application. So I'm going to invite you once more to story time with Dr. Peter. And this is the story of Edward and Vera, a young Catholic married couple. Now, Vera has some difficulty with sexual arousal, and she finds that when Edward stimulates her with his, with his fingers, she loosens up. She becomes much more responsive. It's easier for her to have vaginal intercourse. It's a really common situation in Catholic husbands and wives. But Edward has noticed that he tends to come to orgasm when his wife orgasms. It's so exciting for him that she would come to orgasm, and he's had a history of premature ejaculation in the past. So sometimes he's not able to get inside of Vera in time, right? So let's go back and look at this situation from a Catholic moral perspective, right? So the object, that's the first part of the moral act. That's the object. That's the action or inaction chosen. It's the what. What is going on here? And in this case, it's Edward's digital stimulation of Vera prior to vaginal intercourse. The second is the intention or the motive. What's the reason for doing the action or not doing the action? And the third are the circumstances. These are the situational factors which may affect the morality of the action. It's the who, the what, the where, and the how. And all three of these, the object, the intention or motive, and the circumstances, they must be evaluated to, ter to determine if a moral act is good or evil. All three must be good for an act to be moral. And the way we do this is we analyze the object first, then the intention, then the circumstances. So the object here is vaginal intercourse. And it would be nice, in Vera and Edward's opinion, for both of them to be able to experience orgasm, maybe even at the same time, but their object is vaginal intercourse. That's a good object for a married couple to have. Their intention or motive is to be open to life. They're intending to have vaginal intercourse they are very open to embracing the marital bond and being connected with each other. So we're good there. And then the circumstances, this is where the different sets can come in, body set, mindset, heart set, and soul set. So for Edward and Vera, it's really important to be aware of body responses, especially around ejaculation for Edward. Right? The solutions for him might include things like going a lot slower right, calming down, or maybe for him to be already inside her when he starts stimulating her. That may involve some need for Vera to use some uh, lubrication or for Edward to use some lubrication to make that more tolerable and to stimulate her while he's already inside her. And it may involve some practicing. You know, one of the things that can be helpful here is that after Edward's refractory period ends and he's able to have another erection, he may find that he doesn't ejaculate as quickly. And so that may be a particularly good time to do some practicing here. The refractory period is the recovery phase after orgasm in which it is physiologically impossible for a man to have additional orgasms. But sort of after that, there's kind of a gray zone where he may be able to you know, be less prone to premature ejaculation in this whole process. 
right? So mindset in these circumstances, and this is an openness to ideas, to receptivity, to finding solutions, and as opposed to an intellectual rigidity or a fixed idea of how things should be and how to get there. If there can be some creativity in the mindset for Vera and Edward, that can be really helpful. Heart set. My question here is, can they be playful about this? Can there be a lightness or a sense of humor about this? Or does there need to be a dark seriousness about it, a deep sense of gravity? And then the soul said, is there a sense of divine providence being operative in the sexual intimacy challenges that Vera and Edward are experiencing? All right, so I wanted to highlight the importance of the hierarchy of priorities. It was an excellent essay written in 1942 by C.S. Lewis, entitled First and Second Things. And here's the money quote from that. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote. Quote, To sacrifice the greater good for the less, and then not to get the lesser good after all, that is the surprising folly. Every preference of a small good to a great, or a partial good to a total good, involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice was made. Apparently, the world is made that way. If Esau really got his pottage in return for his birthright, then Esau was a lucky exception. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. Don't want to sacrifice a greater good for a lesser good. Now, this is particularly prominent in the realm of sexual intimacy, right? Because the sexual pleasure is the lesser good. The procreation and the emotional bond of the spouses, those are the greater goods. It brings me back to Matthew 6, 13. Seek ye therefore first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things shall be added unto you. If parts of us are acting autonomously, if they're acting in a way that's disconnected from the core self, they always wind up getting what they don't want. That's a common saying within IFS circles. Because if there is a neglect of the two great goods, procreation and the bond or the union of the spouses, and those are sacrificed by using artificial contraception or through masturbation or whatever in order to seek in order to seek group pleasure or gratification through more intense orgasms that is not the way to sustain your marriage relationship it's not going to work out now that's not what the world is going to tell you you know having sexual intimacy that is focused on procreation, that's focused on the union of the, the spouses is so countercultural. It's so opposite of the, what the world tells us. I, I found this uh, slideshow on WebMD, one of these authorities on the web for medical information. And the title of the slideshow was 14 Reasons You Should Have Sex Now. Right. All right, so let's go through some of these. One, it's exercise. Two, it's, it reduces the risk of heart disease in women. Uh, sex can help with physical pain. It tends to lower stress. It ha- results in longer life expectancy for women. There's a slightly greater cognitive capacity for the 50-plus crowd. You can do better with number recall and basic math. It can lead to better mood. It can lead to less problems with obesity or being overweight. There's some suggestions that people that have more sex have better mental health. Uh, There are more common cold fighting antibodies present in the blood of people who have sex more often than those who have less sex. It can help with sleep. It can lead to a better quality of life in old age, better physical health and so forth. These are all second goods. Now, interestingly, two of, that was 12 of them. The other two were 
bonding to your partner. And the other one was a greater likelihood of a baby, right? So they actually did mention at least, you know, at, at least as two of the 14, the two great goods of sexual union. Well, I thought it was great that they at least had those uh, mixed in with these lesser goods, right? Uh, bonding to your partner was number eight and a greater likelihood of a baby was number 13 in that list of 14 at WebMD. Edward and Vera, they're moving toward vaginal intercourse as the focus and center of the sexual intimacy of their marriage. They're open to procreation. They're open to the procreative act. They're open to the bond of spouses. You know, they're working with this. They're able to see each other. They're, they're in the missionary position. They're experiencing with each other, being with each other in the union, instead of being caught up in the self-absorbed experience of orgasm, as often is the case for so many, so for so many people. Now, one thing I really want to emphasize with this is that Jesus has given us an example of being understanding and forgiving of sexual sins when there is authentic repentance. Right, The woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8, verses 1 to 11. The Pharisees were asking whether or not to stone her. They were trying to trap Jesus, and they were using her as a pawn to be able to get to him, right? to see if they could trip him up and find a way that they could get him to talk himself into a corner so that he could be condemned. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. There's an understanding that our Lord has for why parts of us seek things sexually in disordered ways. It has to do with trying to meet these deep needs for affection, nurturance, and love. Those are the attachment needs and these deep integrity needs. Right? Also, similar kindness in John 4 with the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan, an outcast. She had five husbands. She's cohabiting with a man who is not her husband. Jesus talks with her. It shocks the apostles because this is a gross violation of the prevailing social norms between Jewish men and Samaritan women. But he is talking with her, right? leading her toward salvation. And Jesus also ate with sinners, right? And some of these sinners in Matthew chapter 9, verses 10, where it says, And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. Many of these sinners may have been professional mistresses. They may have been prostitutes. We don't know. It doesn't specifically say in that verse, but that's but what is clear is that these were, again, social outcasts. These were not the people that were upright and proper in the eyes of Jewish society. And Jesus spent time with them. So I do believe that our Lord, if spouses are really working toward those two goals of procreation and sexual and and intimacy between the spouses, there's some latitude here. There are ways that he's going to help us. And I also believe that our Lord is very forgiving of honest mistakes. For example, Edwards' premature ejaculation. His body responses are not always under the immediate control of his will. And to be frank, there's a learning curve here for both Edward and Vera in their sexual intimacy. So if we're trying in good faith, we don't want to get hung up on involuntary bodily responses, which actually can lead to scrupulosity for some Catholics. And I do believe also that loving each other in the sexual intimacy is possible. Here is our ideal. St. Paul gives us the ideal 
in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the kind of love that we want to bring to our sexual relating with our spouses. So where are we going with this podcast? I'm so excited. In June, we're going to have four episodes on an internal family systems informed understanding of the human person grounded in a Catholic anthropology, a Catholic worldview. I'm, I'm going to give you the best keys I have to being able to understand yourself and to be able to understand the people around you, the people you care about, the people that you love. I'm going to help you to really more effectively enter into your own phenomenological world, recognize what's going on there, and also be able to enter into the phenomenological worlds of others and to be able to know them at a deeper level. It's so critical to being able to love them better. So I'm super excited about that. That whole series will start on June 7th, and it coincides with the relaunching of the Resilient Catholics community. I'm excited that our landing page is now updated at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. There's the video presentation on the relaunch we did on May 25th. That's now posted. Check it out. Consider prayerfully about joining us on this pilgrimage toward human formation. And if your discernment says yes, then get on the waiting list. You can register at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. We are opening up registration for those on the waiting list on June 1st. So that's coming up. That might be tomorrow for those of you that are listening when this episode is released, right? The waiting list folks are going to get the first chance. You'll get an email on Tuesday, June 1st with a link to register. Uh, By June 4th, we're going to get that link to register up on the landing page as well. We've got 120 on our waiting list right now. We're taking 80 and so it's, it's it's a first come first serve kind of thing. If you have special Uh, situations like a need for some financial assistance and so forth. I want you to contact Elizabeth Hoffmeister. That information is on the landing page to get a hold of her. Also remember that conversation hours are Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern time on my cell phone, 317-567-9594. Those are starting on June 3rd. So June 3rd, 8th, 10th, 15th, 17th, 22nd, 24th, and 29th. You can get a hold of me, 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. If for some reason I'm on the other line, if I'm on a call already, just leave me a voicemail. Let me know uh, that you've called. I'll call you back. So definitely want to stay in contact with the listeners. Be available to be able to discuss whatever is on your thoughts and minds and hearts and so forth about these podcasts, questions you might have about the Resilient Catholics community, whatever. All right. And so with that, we are going to wrap it for today. Want to invite you to join me in invoking our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.